So thank you. This will be a slightly different kind of talk than most of what we've heard today in that I'm going to be talking about very, very long-term astrophysical processes. Um, and I'm actually going to talk about the entire history of the universe from start to finish. So this is very, very much a big picture kind of question. <laughs> and um, since the time scales are so far removed from everyday experience, um, I hope to have just a little bit of fun with it. So um, it is, in fact, a good after-dinner kind of conversation. So to orient this, I want to introduce you to the idea of what I call a Copernican time principle. Um, as you all know, a couple hundred years ago, Copernicus showed that we're not at the center of our solar system. And since that time, cosmologists have continually degraded us spatially, right? That we don't live at the center of the galaxy. Our galaxy um, is not in any particularly important place in the universe. The universe is spatially homogeneous and isotropic. So there just is nothing special about us in terms of where we live. So we can um, take that idea into the temporal domain and say that there's nothing special in some sense about our particular cosmological epoch. And what I mean very specifically by that is that interesting physical processes will continue to happen in the sense that there will be always energy and entropy generation events um, very, very far into the future. Maybe not forever, but for such a long time that it's effectively forever. So to orient us, um, I'm going to define a logarithmic time scale for you, which we call a cosmological decade. This is especially useful when you're talking about the future. So if I write the time in years as 10 to the n or eta years, then eta will be the cosmological decade. Just to remind everybody in the room, right now the universe is 13.7 billion years old. We can even quote three significant figures with a straight face now, which is kind of nice. But for this discussion, will round, so the universe is 10 to the 10 years old. We're living in the 10th cosmological decade. And I'll give you a timeline that I'll show you in a moment that goes up to about 10 to the 100 years or 100 cosmological decades. So one of the um, things that I want to emphasize to those of you who are not astronomers and cosmologists is that finally, after a century's work, we actually do have a very well-defined timeline for how we go from not quite the Big Bang, but just after the Big Bang, all the way up to the present epoch. What I'm going to do today in most of the talk after setting up the past history is I'm going to describe how we go from the present epoch all the way an equally um, large amount of time, logarithmically speaking, into the future. So a broad general outline of the entire history of the universe is given here on this slide. Um, we can divide the universe into five eras. Um, the first era is the first million years of our existence as a universe which is before cosmological decade six. This um, distinction is made because before cosmological decade six, there are no stellar-like bodies of any kind to generate energy. Um, we think the first stars formed sometime after cosmological decade six. Right now, we're at cosmological decade 10, which is logarithmically in the center of the second era, so the Stelliferous era, which simply means it's filled with stars. When you look out in the sky, you see stars. If you ask what's generating all the energy in our universe today, the answer is stars. Even when you look at galaxies, what you look at are the stars. So stars are kind of running the show at the present um, time. That will continue up to cosmological decade 14. And then we enter into the degenerate era. This is not a moral statement about the universe. Um, Instead, um, when stars die, they leave behind degenerate stellar remnants. We even heard a little bit about that this morning um, in different words. And they are the inheritors of the universe from cosmological decade um, 14 to, I'll say, 40. This is an uncertain number. Um, after the protons decay, if they decay, we enter into um, 
the fourth era, which is the black hole era. Now, it's interesting that black holes are often defined to be something whose gravity is so strong and powerful that not even light can escape its surface. At this time in the cosmological future, black holes will be the brightest things in the sky. And they will generate energy through Hawking radiation. You might have heard of this guy, Stephen Hawking. That's what he's famous for, is the idea that black holes will, in fact, generate energy and go away. <coughs> and since they're generating energy and go away, if you wait long enough, there will be no more black holes. And that takes us to the fifth and final era, the dark era, where my colleague once said on TV, it will be very, very dark. <laughs> So that's it. That's the entire history of the universe from start to finish. What we're going to do now, since we have some time left, is um, <laughs> we're going to go back through this story and fill in some of the detail. Now, um, I plan to do this for about a half hour, and we'll open up for questions. I could talk for not forever, but for hours and days on this. But um, I'll try to get through the detailed version of the story in a half hour. So in the beginning, there was actually a time when there wasn't a universe. So people always ask me, well, what was there before there was a universe? And my answer is, well, I don't know. But since you asked me, I'll give you an answer. And the answer is, before there was a universe, there was a high energy fluctuating quantum gravity space-time. And out of that, every once in a while, a universe is just one of those things that happen from time to time. And what happens is that. Um, a little patch of this space-time will get itself into the right configuration, and I know I'm being vague here, such that it expands rapidly. Now, the space-time here is fluctuating every 10 to the minus 43 seconds or so. That's the quantum gravity time scale, more or less. So we cannot bring our timeline further back than 10 to the minus 43 seconds. To do so is meaningless. You may argue we are approached meaningless going that far back, but we certainly cannot go any further back. What I think is remarkable, though, is we actually have at least something to say about what happens next. So when the universe is at the ripe old age of 10 to the minus 37 seconds, we think it expands exponentially rapidly in this process called inflation. This solves several cosmological properties or conundrums that um, I don't have time to talk about, but it makes the universe big and flat and old and homogeneous, just like we see. After the inflation comes to end, there's a big event, and we're still uncertain of exactly how this happens, but we develop a symmetry between matter and antimatter. So since this is an experimental science, I want you all to reach out and touch the shoulder of the person next to you. Now you notice that nobody exploded, right? <laughs> and what that means is that everyone in this room is made of matter rather than antimatter. And astronomers have done this experiment in a slightly more formal way all across the universe. And we think, given all our data, we think that the entire universe is made of matter and not antimatter. There's no evidence for anti-galaxies. People have looked and not found them. Um, so we think that early on in the history of the universe, an asymmetry between matter and antimatter was set up. And what this means in terms of the future of the universe is that there is some process that violates baryon number. In other words, there is a way to turn things, baryons, into anti-baryons and back and forth. In order to get this asymmetry, you need some other properties. And the reason why this is important, and the reason why I'm going on about it, is that since there is obviously a baryon violating process that physics allows, this allows for proton decay. It doesn't guarantee it, but it certainly allows for it. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And if protons decay, 
that means we're all doomed in the end, right? So there's your answer as to what's going to happen to the universe in the long term. And we'll come back to this in more detail. Um, after the universe is about one second old, the dark matter particles freeze into their population. We've heard that dark matter is the dominant um, species of mass in the universe. And then when the universe is the ripe old age of one second to three minutes, all of the light elements are produced. The vast majority of, the he of helium in the universe is produced. To um, orient those of you who are non-astronomers, you might have wondered, well, why do we believe in Big Bang nucleosynthesis? What's the big deal about helium? Don't stars make helium? Well, yes. The sun is run by having hydrogen fused into helium. But all of the stars in all of the galaxies and all of history have only produced a couple percent of the universe from hydrogen to helium. During this Big Bang three-minute window, 25% of the universe was converted from hydrogen into helium. So in this three-minute window, there was vastly more nuclear reactions taking place than have ever taken place in history ever since. And that is why we think that Big Bang nucleosynthesis took place. In fact, it gives you the right elements, the right abundances of the light elements. And that takes us to the end of the, the primordial era. We had a Big Bang at 10 to the minus 43 seconds, inflation at 10 to the minus 37 seconds. We set up an asymmetry between matter and antimatter. Quarks get um, confined into protons and neutrons when the universe is about a microsecond old. Nuclear processes give us all the helium when the universe is about a minute old. Then we have the microwave background, which is produced, and then it um, gives us a picture of what the universe looked like when it was 300,000 years old. And out of these fluctuations, which were perhaps produced by the inflationary epoch I described earlier, you get the large-scale structure of the universe. I like to look at this picture. This is a computer simulation of about half the universe. And if you look at this, it resolves, I think, the usual puzzle that you look at the universe and you say, well, on the small scale, it's lumpy. But yet, we told you the universe was homogeneous and isotropic. And when we do our equations for Big Bang physics, we use the simplest solutions of general relativity where we assume homogeneity and isotropy. How can we get away with it? Well, if you look at this, this is actually pretty smooth. But if you look at it closely, it's actually pretty lumpy. So the universe is both very, very smooth and very, very lumpy all at the same time. And this picture just shows you exactly what that means. So what happens next is that inside those little knots, you get galaxy clusters and galaxies colliding and more galaxies and stars. And that takes us up to the present epoch. So that's our whirlwind tour of the past history of the universe. Most cosmological talks that you've heard, and you've probably heard some, I'm guessing, will focus on that story. So what I'm going to do now for the rest of the time is to take that as my starting point and use all the laws of physics that we understand, including some that we don't, and all of the astronomy that we understand, including the things we only marginally understand. And I'm going to run that machinery into the future to see what happens. So here we go. The first thing that you want to know is what happens to the universe itself. So what happens to the universe on the largest scales you're going to consider? So one of the things that's come out of astronomy and astrophysics in the last decade is we finally know what we're doing in the sense that we finally 
at least think we know what the matter and energy content of the universe is. There's three main experiments, and what I'm plotting here is the matter content in terms of fraction of closure density and the vacuum energy content in terms of fraction of energy density. And if you look at microwave background experiments, like the WMAP map I just showed you, you see that the universe um, has to lie along a line here, which corresponds to a universe that's spatially flat. If you look at supernova um, 1A redshift distance relations, you get a curve along this line, which shows you that the universe is accelerating. And then if you look at just how much mass is contained in galaxy clusters. Um, our speaker yesterday showed us some nice pictures of gravitational lensing, thank you, um, which showed if you take that to its logical conclusion, you can weigh the universe in clusters and figure out that the cluster mass density falls along this line. There's a nice intersection here where all three bands cross, and we think our universe lives in this part of the diagram. And that tells us that we have about 30% matter and about 70% dark energy or vacuum energy. And that means the universe is actually dominated by stuff that is not stuff. It's dominated by the energy density associated with empty space. And the energy density associated with empty space has somewhat strange properties, including the property that it will cause the universe to accelerate. So because we think we live in an accelerating universe, um, the universe will live for, if not forever, at least for a really long time, long enough for the crazy long timescales we're talking about in this talk to have a chance to play themselves out. So what happens? Well, what I'm going to show you now is a numerical simulation of large-scale structure formation in an accelerating universe. The counter on the lower um, left corner is the size of the universe in units of the scale factor where A of 1 is today. So I've picked up the story in this movie when the universe is about one-fourth as big as it is today. The simulation was run from earlier times, with, starting with the microwave background fluctuations we showed you, but the movie's really boring from then on to here. So we're, we're starting sort of in the middle of the movie. So we're going to start this and see if it works. Yeah. And the universe is evolving. And then when we get to about today, the universe looks like that. And that is, in fact, about how the universe looks when you look out in the sky and map the large scale structure. So what we're going to do now is we're going to simply be too lazy to turn our computer off and let the universe keep going. So as the universe gets older, what happens is that what I'm looking at here is the largest galaxy cluster in the whole simulation, which is about the same size as the lar largest galaxy cluster that we see in our whole universe today. And you see that after about, well, that time, not a whole lot happens. So just to um, revisit this, these are stills from the movie. So, um, Today, the universe looks like this. Both in, This is the computer simulation of it, but this is also how the real universe looks. In about 54 billion years in, this little red box here becomes this box, and then in the next, this little box here becomes this box. And what happens is that each gravitationally bound structure stays gravitationally bound, but each separately separate structure gets accelerated out of the horizon of every other structure. So that in the relatively near future, where for me, the relatively near future is 100 billion years, okay? In the relatively near future, each gravitationally bound structure becomes its own island universe. So in terms of the future of humanity or whatnot, if you were to do astronomy at this time in the far future, one, you would see no extragalactic sources. 
They're not only are they not near you, they're not visible to you, okay? They've been accelerated out of your horizon. So you would actually not know that there are any other extragalactic structures. All you would have are what's in your local group of gravitationally bound structures. You would also not see the microwave background anymore because it would be redshifted out of um, sight and you would be only dominated by the vacuum energy. You also wouldn't be able to tell that Big Bang nucleosynthesis took place because by this time in the far future, the stellar nuclear processes would start to dominate. I made the big point earlier that they don't dominate yet, but if you wait long enough, they will. So it would be actually hard to tell if you're an astronomer 100 billion years from now. It would be actually hard to tell that the Big Bang happened. Whereas today, it's relatively easy to tell that the Big Bang happened. So that's kind of an amusing thing. But in terms of resources, you're stuck in this island. So whatever you have for resources in the island, which is a pretty big island, it's a whole galaxy cluster, that's all you get. Now what happens inside them? I mean, that's all that's going to happen to the large-scale structure. We'll be isolated, each thing will be isolated, and that's the end of that story. But inside, things happen. Now in our particular case, our Milky Way belongs to a small group of galaxies called the local group because it's the local group of galaxies. Astronomers thought it really hard before they named that. And the local group consists of us, Andromeda, who you see here, and a bunch of little smurfy things orbiting about. Now the cool thing about Andromeda is that, and we're bound to Andromeda, so that's all we have in our island universe of the future, are these galaxies. And the thing about Andromeda is that it's headed straight for us. So if you wait a little bit, where a little bit here means about a Hubble time of order 10 billion years, the Milky Way and Andromeda will collide and merge. Now that seems like a dramatic thing. If you look at galaxies merging from the outside, the beautiful spiral patterns get completely ripped apart eventually. This is just early on into the collision. Um, and a set of merging galaxies from the outside looks very much like a train wreck. However, if you think about what happens when you're inside the galaxy, well, galaxies are relentlessly empty. So if you shrink stars down to the size of sand grains, then there's miles of space in between those sand grains. So when Milky Way and Andromeda collide, chances are good that no two stars will actually bother to hit each other. The gravitational interactions will cause them to merge. But if you were inside the galaxy while it was merging and you could live for a billion years or so to see it unfold, you would not see anything very dramatic. You would primarily just see a gradual doubling of the brightness of the night sky. Now occasionally the molecular clouds that we heard about earlier today will collide and that will lead to a burst of new star formation, so that will be kind of cool. But other than that, you will mostly just see um, the night sky slowly getting brighter. So that's what happens to our galaxy on the sort of moderately short-term, long-term. What happens next um, is what happens to our sun. And again, we heard a little bit about this yesterday as well. Here I'm plotting an HR diagram where we plot the power output of a star on the vertical axis and the temperature or spectral class on the horizontal axis, keeping in mind that astronomers do everything backwards, so um, hot is to the left, okay? So right now the sun lives at this point A, and then in three and a half billion years or so, it will move up to point B. Now that doesn't look particularly dramatic but this spells the life 
or the end of life on Earth. So in some sense, it's important to this audience, right? The sun is only 40% brighter at point B than point A, but that's more than enough to drive a runaway greenhouse effect on the planet and thereby destroy the biosphere. Some estimates say that that runaway effect and the sterilization of the biosphere will happen sooner. Three and a half billion years is probably the longest you can possibly imagine keeping it going. It might happen as soon as one billion years. Just for the sake of definiteness, I'm going to use three and a half billion years in the numbers I give you today, but you can scale everything I say accordingly. Then um, later on, so that's the end of the biosphere and the end of life. But as far as the planet's concerned, it doesn't care whether we're on the surface or not, really. So the sun will go from point B all the way up to point C here, where it becomes a red giant. And w when it becomes a red giant, what happens is it surface expands. It first eats Mercury, and then it eats Venus. And it gets out to about where the radius of Earth is. But since it's losing mass as it gets bigger, the radius of Earth's orbit, or the semi-major axis, gets larger. And it almost escapes. And then it's a little uncertain as to what happens. What probably happens is that as the Earth plows through the material that's streaming away from the sun, it loses energy of its orbit and gets spirals back into the, the sun. There are some calculations that say it barely survives as a crispy cinder. But either way, this marks pretty much the end of the Earth itself. And this is about 7 billion years into the future. Now, that's not a particularly um, happy moment. So there's a way to save the Earth. So here's a, uh, just a toy simulation where a red dwarf comes in and scatters the sun, the moon, and the earth into four different directions. But you can do a slightly more sophisticated treatment of this and ask the following question. The solar system lives in the solar neighborhood. There's passing stars. What, are the pro what is the probability that a passing star will come by and save the earth during this three and a half billion year window that life has, or the seven billion year window that the Earth has. So um, to answer this question, we've done literally a million Monte Carlo um, flyby numerical simulations where you take solar systems and passing binaries and you send them um, flying by each other with different versions of the parameters and then you mine those results for cross sections. And with those cross sections, you can calculate probabilities and the probability that Earth will be um, ejected and therefore saved is about one part in 10 to the 5 for every 3 billion years. So, but that's a number you can take to the bank. And it's also not real good odds. But what good does that do you? Well, it's actually kind of an interesting thing. If Earth is saved in this way, you might think, well, the biosphere will freeze. But there's natural radioactivity deep inside the Earth. And that can continue for several half-lives. So whereas the biosphere only has about 3 billion years maximum left, if Earth stays in its orbit, if it gets ejected, it has 30 billion years of radioactivity, which can keep liquid water pockets deep underground liquid. So little bugs can live for 30 billion years. So life on Earth actually continues longer if we're ejected, but not really at a very high level, right? All the surface is frozen and that will freeze in a million years. You only have little tiny pockets deep underground. But this sets up an interesting speculation that I'll give you. Icy worlds are easier to make if they're out 
in the, solar, the outer solar system where it's cold. So if you put these two ideas together, namely that planets like the Earth have an internal radioactive source, which we can keep water liquid, and you have icy worlds in the outer solar system, then it's very, very easy to make an icy world in which you have, it turns out, 14 kilometers of ice and then liquid water below that. So the most common liquid water environments in the galaxy are not on planets like our Earth. They're on frozen planets where the liquid water is below the ice sheet. That may or may not do you good if you want to be a space traveler and do habitability, but if, you're, if you care about life at the microbial level, these are probably the most common environments in the whole galaxy for life to exist. And here on Earth, there's at least one class of thought that says life originated deep underground. So these planets would be good candidates for life to arise on if that is indeed the case. Perhaps a biologist might want to comment on this. But the real lottery winner is not to have Earth ejected, but rather to have Earth captured by another star. And there's an odds of that happening, too. You see that you have these wonderfully complex, chaotic interactions. Um, and this is just one of them, but this is one in which a pair of marauding red dwarfs come in, trade the Earth around for a while, and then one of them leaves with the Earth after 9,000 years of orbits. And this is just one of many ways in which the Earth can be captured. But again, by doing these Monte Carlo statistical calculations, I can give you the odds. So over a three billion year time frame, the odds of Earth being captured are about one in three million. It's about the odds of you winning the lottery. So. So what happens next? Our sun's gone in seven billion years, but the galaxy is continuing to make new suns and new stars. So you can ask the question, how long can a galaxy like the Milky Way sustain ordinary star formation? Well, the galaxy will sustain star formation until it literally runs out of gas, because gas, hydrogen gas, is the raw material that it makes. So there's this complex sort of cycle I call it the karmic cycle of stellar evolution, where clouds turn into stars and give some back and some blow up and so on. But the longest you can possibly keep this going is trillions of years. Now that's significant, because right now the universe is only billions of years old. So you can continue to make stars at least an attenuated level for trillions of years. We're only one-tenth of the one percent of the way into the total stellar part of our lifetime. So the galaxy will continue to do this, make new stars until perhaps cosmological decade 14 at the most. Now you can ask the question, well, our sun dies in a total of 10 billion, 13 billion years. What about this, the other stars? Well, it turns out that the smallest stars are those that live the longest. And it also turns out that no one had bothered to do the stellar evolutionary calculations for the long-term development of the smallest stars because they live longer than the age of the universe. So these are the tracks for, in the HR diagram again, power versus temperature, for the smallest stars. And there's a number of interesting things here. Um, one is that stars bigger than about a quarter of a solar mass become red giants like our sun. Those that are sm smaller than that don't become red giants. They become blue dwarfs instead. So, for those of you who are astronomers, everybody knows that the sun turns into a red giant when it dies. But let me just pull the astronomers in the audience. Who would like to explain why? <laughs> it's a hard question, isn't it? Yeah, 
But um, by studying the stars that become red giants and those that don't, you have a stellar evolutionary laboratory in which you can turn the various knobs and figure out what properties are required to make things turned into red giants. And there's a whole different talk I could give on just that topic. But the point is that by studying the future of the universe, you learn quite a lot about the universe we live in today, in this case, the red giant problem. Um, if I zoom in on this panel here, which, there it worked, um, you see I'm plotting the lifetime of the stars versus mass, and this is in trillions of years. So the smallest star lives the longest, and with ordinary opacities, ordinary metal content, um, the longest lived smallest star will live for 12 trillion years. If you add more metals to the star, it will live longer. So the longest lived stars will be tens of trillions of years old before they die. So we have this kind of coincidence, well, it's a logarithmic coincidence, so it's not much of a coincidence, that you can continue to make stars for trillions and trillions of years, and the longest lived smallest stars live for trillions and trillions of years. So until the universe is trillions and trillions of years old, we will have lots of stars, and when it's older than that, we won't. So that brings us to the end of the Stelliferous Era, where the era is dominated by stars. The lowest mass stars become increasingly important because all the higher mass ones die. It's interesting that not only do the higher mass ones die, but you see that if you go back to this HR diagram, the lowest mass stars get brighter with time. So even though the larger ones are dying off, the smallest ones are not, and they're getting brighter. So the overall power output of the galaxy is more or less constant for trillions of years again until it plummets after the end of trillions of years. I should have brought that plot, but you get the idea. And then all of this comes to an end at cosmological decade 14 or so. Now, I only have, I think, five or 10 minutes left, and we're only a small fraction of the way in. But that's okay, because we have less to say as we go further into the future, so I can speed up. We're now entering, entering into the third of our five eras, where we're gonna stop and take inventory. So what's left after stellar evolution? Well, the largest stars blow up and leave behind black holes, as we heard about this morning. These are the remnants from the hypernova explosions we heard about. Stars bigger than eight solar masses will blow up and leave behind a neutron star. But most stars that are stars will not blow up. Anything between 0.08 and eight solar masses, which makes up 997 out of 1,000 of all stars, will turn into white dwarfs upon their death. That's an object that's got roughly the mass of a sun that's shrunk down to roughly the size of the Earth, supported by electron degeneracy pressure. And then there's a number of brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs are objects that are stellar bodies that aren't big enough to ever burn hydrogen. So they're still around. They're also supported by degeneracy pressure. And they're um, hoarding all the supplies of unburned hydrogen. So this is just a pie chart that shows what I just showed. Now, I told you that star formation ends. Well, I kind of lied to you. Star formation, I said, actually, I was kind of careful. I said conventional star formation ends. If you wait long enough, stellar collisions will happen. So if you think about it, the concentrated supplies of unburned hydrogen in the universe at this time in the future are concentrated into brown dwarfs. And when brown dwarfs collide, they can form a merger product which is big enough to be a star. Now, it turns out we know all the numbers. We know how many brown dwarfs they are. 
We know their density. We know their orbits. We know how often they come, how close to each other. We know through numerical simulations like this one how often they collide and form a merger product big enough. So you can calculate how many stars will be shining in the galaxy due to brown dwarf collisions at this point in the future. So remember today, as Carl Sagan has taught us, we have billions and billions of stars in the galaxy. At this time in the far future, there'll be one <laughs> or two stars in the, in the sky. And they will be roughly um, a tenth of a solar mass, a thousand times dimmer than our sun. And every once in a while, the white dwarfs will collide and produce spectacular supernovae. But most of the time, the white dwarfs that collide will not produce objects big enough to blow up, and you'll just get a funny white dwarf. Now, at the same time, the white dwarfs will do something else. They will hoover up all the dark matter particles, or not all of them, but they'll hoover up the supply of them they have. Those dark matter particles will collect in the middle of the white dwarf, annihilate with each other, and produce an energy source. So one of the most important energy sources during the degenerate era is that due to dark matter being captured by white dwarfs and annihilated therein. At the same time, the galaxy itself will redistribute its structure. The stars are orbiting around each other, sharing energy. Some get kicked up to higher energy. Some get kicked up to lower energy. Those that get kicked up to higher energy are evaporated from the galaxy. So if you wait long enough, the whole galaxy literally evaporates. And how long you have to wait turns out to be about 20 cosmological decades. So we're going to accelerate even further. The end of this degenerate era happens when the protons decay, or perhaps I should say if the protons decay. Um, proton decay has many possible channels. And its lifetime, the proton lifetime, I would say, is recklessly uncertain. But at the same time, this is an experimental science. The experimental proton decay experiments are now in their third or fourth generation, depending on how you count. And they've shown that the proton lives at least 33 cosmological decades. There are good, well, what I consider good theoretical arguments that say the proton should live less than 45 cosmological decades. But even so, we have 12 orders of magnitude here to play with. And it could be even longer than this number, to be 100% honest. But this is a very important process in that it changes the universe more dramatically than just about anything else you can imagine. So just to give you a flavor, one, this is the simplest possible proton decay channel, wherein you have to look at the internal quarks of the um, proton. There's an intermediate particle that, if you think about it this way, turns quarks into leptons. And then at the end of this decay event, you get a positron and a pion. Pions immediately decay into radiation. Positrons will, if this happens inside a star, will immediately turn into, uh, or find an electron to annihilate with, and also turn into radiation. So the net result of a proton decay event in a white dwarf or any degenerate object will be just to turn all the mass energy into radiation. And that will be the power source for stars when you're in the 10 to the 30-something year time frame. So the HR diagram looks something like this. White dwarfs come down. They get bigger as they lose mass. They get bigger in radius as they lose mass because degenerate objects do that. Once the star is about the same mass and size of Jupiter, it's no longer degenerate. So it's lost a factor of 1,000 in mass and gained about a factor of 10 in radius. And then it's just a big block of hydrogen ice, and then it slowly goes away. And this will be the fate of any remaining brown dwarfs, any remaining planets, um, any remaining white dwarfs. Neutron stars will do the same thing, except they'll be denser, 
but once they reach a certain um, threshold, they'll pop over and become white dwarfs or they'll just explode. But either way, all the degenerate objects under proton decay will go away, and we're left with only the black holes. So this is just a summary of the degenerate era, and we'll go on to the black hole era. So in the black hole era, there's only black holes. And what I mean by that is the, the black holes are the only remaining stellar-like bodies that can generate energy. So the inventory is rather simple. Each galaxy has one big black hole in the center. And the astronomers thought real hard and decided to call this a supermassive black hole, because it's got a lot of mass. Um, the typical mass is anywhere from a million to billions of times the mass of the sun. Now, in addition to the one big black hole per Milky Way-sized galaxy, there's stellar black holes that are left over from these um, hypernova explosions we've heard about. And the approximate number per big galaxy is about a million. So that's all you get. For each Milky Way-sized galaxy, you get roughly one supermassive black hole and roughly a million stellar mass black holes. So what do they do? Well, they do one thing. They generate energy through Hawking radiation. So I think I have time. I'll try to explain to you how Hawking radiation works in the very simplest terms. So this is a good way to explain it to the non-scientists among that you might have to talk to sometime. So basically, to explain Hawking radiation, you've got to keep three things in your head at the same time. Okay? The first is that um, near the surface of a black hole, there's something called a tidal force. Well, actually, near the surface of the Earth, there's something called the tidal force. Your feet are closer to the center of the Earth than your head, right? So that means that the Earth is pulling on your feet harder than it's pulling on your head. So as far as you're concerned, you're being stretched by the gravity of the Earth. That's the tidal force. Now, you can't really feel it because it's not a very big effect because the Earth isn't that strong and you're not that tall. But if you're near the surface of a black hole, everything is more extreme. So this tidal stretching is really extreme. So there is a force, a tidal stretching force, near the event horizon of a black hole. That's the first thing you have to keep in your mind. The second is that um, empty space isn't empty. Because of quantum mechanics, there's an uncertainty principle, which loosely speaking means particles pop in and out of existence. So there's these virtual particles that pop in and out of existence. They pop in and go away. You can violate conservation of energy as long as you do so for a small enough time, and that's what the uncertainty principle allows you to do. And since it's allowed in this case, it happens. So now we have two things. We have virtual particles popping in and out of existence, and we have a tidal stretching force, which we have established exists. The third thing you need to keep in mind is something from high school physics that work is equal to force times distance. So while these virtual particles are in existence, they're going a distance. They're being acted on by a force. So if you multiply that force by that distance, there's work being done on these particles. Well, that work being done on the particles actually gives them energy. So if you give them enough energy, you can promote them from virtual existence into real existence, and one of them can fly away. And that's the way in which you get energy removed from a black hole. It's the quantum mechanical it's a combination of quantum mechanical effects and gravity. Now, you can ask, well, where does that energy come from? Well, what's doing the, for what's doing the pulling, what's causing the force is the gravity. And the source of the force, the source of the gravitational force, is ultimately the mass of the black hole. So it's ultimately the mass of the black hole that has to pay for this. 
And that's why the mass of the black hole go, gets smaller as this process proceeds. Now, it's a very slow process. The bottom line, which is on the bottom here, says that a solar mass black hole will last for 65 cosmological decades, or 10 to the 65 years. And then the lifetime goes like the mass cubed. So if you ask what happens, a solar mass black hole goes away in 65 cosmological decades. Most stellar mass black holes are more like 10 times the mass of the sun, so they'll live for like 68 cosmological decades. The million solar mass black hole that lives in the middle of our galaxy will live for only 83 cosmological decades. And the biggest black holes you can imagine making are where you have a black hole in the mass of an entire galaxy, and that will live for only 98 cosmological decades. But just to illustrate to you that black holes are not forever, if you took every particle in the observable universe today, you can't do this, but if you could, and you took them all and you put them into a black hole, that whole universe mass black hole would evaporate in only, only, 131 cosmological decades, which compared to infinity is really close to zero, if you think about it, right? So we've now entered the last era where there's no stellar bodies of any kind because the largest black holes have evaporated. We're now 10 to the 100 years into the future. There's really not much left here. We have positrons, electrons, some neutrinos, very long wavelength photons. All the dregs from the previous astrophysical processes we talked about happened. There'll be some low-level annihilation events, but not too much happening. However, there's one possibility. We said that earlier, we said that the universe is accelerating and it has a vacuum energy associated with it, which is causing the acceleration. And that means that empty space isn't empty, but it has an energy level associated with it. Well, as soon as you buy that, it then becomes possible for there to be two energy levels that the vacuum could have, not just one. So if there's two energy levels possible, and we live in the high energy level, then there's a possibility of a transition to the lower energy level. Now, we don't know if this potential, which I've just cartooned here, we don't know if this describes our universe or not. It's easy to write down a theory that says this, but that doesn't mean that that's what our universe is doing. But nonetheless, if that's the case, then you can have the universe any time in the future experience what's called the cosmological phase transition. And what happens is that a tiny patch of space-time will make the transition from the high-energy state to the low-energy state. So if you look at that, it looks like this. You have these little bubbles of the new phase nucleating in the C of the old phase. And if you just do the poor man's movie and let this kind of evolve, you can, under the right circumstances, get percolation, which means that the whole universe will be transformed to the new phase. And in some sense, the universe gets a new start. What do I mean by that? Well, if the original field that's doing the transi transitioning couples or talks to either the forces or the particle masses or any of the fundamental parameters of physics, then in some sense, the, the laws of physics could change when the universe undergoes this phase transition. So that's the way in which the universe could potentially get a new start. And to close down the big picture, we see that um, our universe could not, well, this is the story of our universe. It kind of goes through this long birth and then a very, very slow dying. But it's really not that depressing in the sense that um, our universe could be one of many. 
And we could have lots of universes connected to ours or just other separate Big Bang events that lead to other universes. And this whole collection of universes is often called the multiverse. So that's one way in which our universe may, and I emphasize the word may, not does, fit into the kind of big picture of other universes. So that's probably a good place to stop, and I will take questions. Thank you.